Good readings in the Master's name. Again, this morning we want to look at Hebrews and uh, still kind of looking at the first chapter, perhaps a little bit of the second chapter. Hebrews chapter 1. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. And then the rest of the chapter, he quotes seven different passages in the Old Testament showing that Christ is better than the angels. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But unto the Son, he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, has anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest they shall all wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Set on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received the just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, and with divers miracles, and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to his own will." A little background here, uh, I think. A little bit of the setting I wanted to look at this morning. What's the title of this book? Hebrews. And what do we call Hebrews? Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's that's right. That's what we call the faith chapter. But I'm, I'm thinking about the, the class of people, Hebrews. What do we call them nowadays? Jews. Jews, Okay. Now, these Hebrews were Christian Hebrews. Now, what, what, what is a Christian Hebrew today? There's a special name we give them. Messianic Jews. Okay, so these were the first century Messianic Jews. Um, and as far as the... Uh, so that's who the book is written to. And, okay, we don't know the author... We don't know exactly who it was written to, but there's some some thought that it was probably written to Palestinian Jews. Um, just a little bit more about that in a minute. Um, it was written probably 
in the decade before the temple was destroyed, the temple hadn't been destroyed yet because of all the ceremonies and stuff he's still referring to. So possibly A.D. 60, 65, somewhere along in there. And so the, okay, um, the Palestinian Jews, they were the first converts. In fact, let's look at that. Now, that was kind of interesting just to review some of that. Uh, the, the first converts were Jews. Later on, it was mostly Gentiles. But let's go back to the beginning in Acts 2. Acts 2, verse 37. This is at the end, at least of what's recorded, at the end of Paul uh, Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Uh, Acts 2, 37. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the, the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, and in breaking of bread and prayers. Hey, there's a sermon. At the end of the sermon, 3,000 converts. Sounds like there's some vibrancy there. Uh, chapter 4. This is after the lame man was healed at the temple. Chapter 4, first verse. And as they spake unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in hold until the next day, for it was now even time. How be it, many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. That's the men. And so there were more than that. So we had 3,000. Now we got 5,000 more. Okay, verse 32. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. The multitude. There's a multitude of them. And chapter 5, verse 14. And believers the more were the more added to the Lord. Multitudes, both of men and women. I mean, this sounds like a vibrant church. Then, as time went on, it seemed like the, um, the action or the enthusiasm or uh, anyway, it shifted from Jerusalem to Antioch. Uh, but Jerusalem was still the sort of the mother church. Uh, okay, so you know in Acts 13, the, uh, the elders, let's see, how does it say it exactly? It says, um, certain prophets, teachers... So anyway, they ministered to the Lord and fasted. The Holy Ghost said, separate me, Barnabas and Saul. They sent them off on the first missionary journey there at the beginning of Acts 13. And so then uh, we go on, and at the end of chapter 14, it says, um, the return to Antioch in Syria, thence sailed, and thence sailed to Antioch from whence they had been recommended to the grace of God for the work which they fulfilled. What I'm talking about now, see, the Antioch church was there were more Gentile converts there, I think. Some Jews too, but uh, but anyway, like I say, sort of the seems like the focus now has shifted to Antioch. 
And uh, so Paul went on the first missionary journey. He came back to Antioch. But then this controversy came up. They didn't, they didn't settle the controversy there. They went to Jerusalem. That's why I say it was still kind of the mother church. And so they, they, they wrestled with this problem and came up with a solution. And then, um, then after that, they go on a second missionary journey. And so I want to um, find where they came back from that one. Um, it's chapter, okay, chapter 18, verse 22, I believe it is. No, that's returning from 30, but I, I, some, I, I don't quite have written down here quite about the, uh, the second one when they got back from the second one. But, but Paul, Paul, Paul reported back to the church at Jerusalem. And so here at the end of the third missionary journey, um, it's in verse 22 of chapter 18. And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and saluted the church, so that's at Jerusalem, he went down to Antioch. So he reported back. So anyway, um, so we had this shift. We had this vibrant church uh, shortly after the resurrection. We had thousands and thousands of believers in Jerusalem. And they were Palestinian Jews. Okay, now you move 30 years. You move 30 years, approximately, we'll say, to the when this when the book of Hebrews was written, and it was written, we think, to Palestinian Jews. And so I don't know if you'd say they had I'm not going to say they cooled off, but they were facing some challenges, some discouragements. It's it's pretty obvious in the book. They faced some challenges and some discouragements. And you see, the people that had stayed Jews and had stayed true to Judaism, uh, they, 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 as, you, as, you, as you read the book of Hebrews, you can kind of see uh, what their argument was. You know, they would say, uh, we Jews, we have the rich heritage of the prophets. I wrote down some of these things just to have here. We have the prophets. We have the ministry of angels. Uh, and we might look at a verse or two of that later where the angels was a pretty big deal to the Jews. And like, you know, we think about God giving the, the law to Moses on Mount Sinai, but then there's a reference in the New Testament where it talks about angels doing it. So they had that. They had Moses. And, you know, the Pentateuch, the law that came through Moses. I mean, on Mount Sinai, when that mountain quaked and the fire and everything, they had that. They had Joshua the conqueror. And they had the temple. And I mean it was glorious. You had the, uh, the building itself. They said when the sun shone on the marble. Well of course Solomon's temple was glorious. And then the one they built on the return wasn't so great. But then Herod he wanted to, to, trying to get in the good good uh, graces of the Jews. He had really... Uh, really going all out building the temple and they said it was a magnificent structure and uh, so they had the building but then they had all, all those furnishings all those glorious furnishings in the temple and then you had all the ceremonies and you had the Aaronic priesthood which and you know they had all these garments you know everything was just so grander and uh, and then they had their special days you know day of atonement Pentecost the uh, uh, 
Feast of Tabernacles, Passover. I mean, they 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 had all that. The Jews had all that. And what did these Hebrew Christians have? Okay, they had Christ. Now, the, the Jews, they had the prophets, the angels, Moses, Joshua, Aaron, Temple, and so on. Okay, and so all these things are tangible. They're visible. This is what? Invisible. And the Hebrew Christians not only had they had Christ, okay, that's invisible, but they also had these things. And if you've read if you've read stories about people leaving the Jewish faith when their their families are really uh, I don't know if you say orthodox, but they're really tight in their Jewish faith. And if you leave that, this is what happens to some. Disinheritance, excommunication, of course, job loss, mental harassment, physical abuse, maybe torture even, mockery, uh, imprisonment, martyrdom. And I was thinking about that, and I thought about this book I read probably decades ago, and I scanned it yesterday again. The perfect illustration of that, the perfect illustration of a Hebrew Christian person who leaves a very um, comfortable, wealthy, privileged Jewish setting and goes all out for Jesus Christ. It's the book Judith. How many of you read Judith? Just a few of you. I tell you, this illustrates, this illustrates, and it was, it was the early 1900s she actually died during the Bolshevik Revolution. Uh, it illustrates perfectly what some of these Hebrew Christians were facing in the book of Hebrews. If you want to know the pressure that was on them and the steps that they had taken, but what happened to her when she chose Christ, the, uh, you know, what did the Jews consider him? imposter, a heretic, or whatever. Uh, but it's it's powerful. And uh, I know not everybody likes to read as good as I do, but when you read something like this, to me, not, not just to understand the book of Hebrews, but somebody who is sold out for Jesus Christ. And so, yeah, well, anyway. <coughs> oh, I don't, uh, I did that. There's a, there's another one. Give you a little bit of an illustration. This one had been pretty close to the same time. It's very early 1900s. Uh, Morris Rubin. Morris Rubin belonged to a wealthy family, had the best the world could give him, and lived to make money. He was the director of Solomon and Rubin, one of the largest stores in Pittsburgh. But the life of one of his buyers used to put him under deep conviction until one day he said to him, You must have been born happy. And here are the spirit of God is in work. I mean, when you can give a reply like this. Yes, replied the buyer. In my second birth, I accepted the Lord Jesus Christ and was born of God. In my first birth, I was no happier than you. Reuben was so moved by this testimony that he bought a New Testament. And there he was impressed with the fact that all those who followed Jesus were Jews. John the Baptist pointing to him as the Lamb of God. Peter, James, and John, the 12 disciples, 
And to a Jew, the Savior had said, On this rock I will build my church. Then he came to the story of the rich young ruler. It was a dramatic moment, a rich Jew of the 20th century and under conviction, reading of the Savior's dealings with a rich Jew of the 1st century. The way that Reuben saw it was that if Jesus had told that young man to sell all to inherit eternal life, how could he, Reuben, inherit the same gift unless on the same condition? It was his supreme test. If he became a disciple, he knew that he too stood to lose all. But it was too late to go back. He had seen it and he must follow. Reuben faced it fairly and squarely and counted the cost. His wife might leave him. His brother put him out of the business and not a single Jew follow him. But he had made up his mind. If he lost everything, he meant to do it. Then one day on the way to the store, Reuben heard a voice repeating to him the words of John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. The truth flashed upon him. He accepted Christ and entered into life that moment. He then told his brother and others. According to his father's will, he was to forfeit every penny if he changed his religion. But his brother offered to give him his share of the business, which amounted not to 10000 but to more than 100000 And this was about 1900 which... 100,000 bought quite a few farms back then. If he would go across the United States and retire in Montana. But Reuben replied, I have had the light in Pittsburgh and I'm going to witness in Pittsburgh. Late that Saturday night, detectives came and took him to the police station. On Monday, two doctors visited his cell and asked him about the voice he heard. Did they question my sanity, he thought. Two hours later, Warders came from the asylum and took him to a room where there were 29 mentally deranged people. The bitterness of his position overcame him. He had victory in the lockup, but this seemed more than he could bear. He fell on his knees by his bed and poured out his heart to the Lord. He did not know how long he was there, but he seemed to lose himself, and a vision of Calvary appeared to him. He said he witnessed every stage of the crucifixion. He forgot his own sufferings and the sufferings of the Savior. And as he gazed on the cross, the Master himself said to him, And must I bear the cross alone and all the world go free? From a broken heart, Reuben answered, No, there's a cross for everyone and there's a cross for me. By the way, this morning we sang him, I, soldier of the cross. From that hour, he was a new man. Instead of complaining at being in the asylum, he began to pray for the other 29. And to the Savior he said, let me suffer for you. Whatever you allow me to go through, I will never complain again. Two weeks later, Reuben's brother came to see him and approached him for his folly in getting himself into such a place. Why won't you be wise, he said. Get out of here and go to Montana. Does that offer still stand? Then it is not a mental condition, but something else that is keeping me here, said Reuben with all the keenness of his logical mind. Some Christian friends he was in touch with caused inquiries to be set on foot. In six weeks, his release was procured. It became a court case, and the test was on the voice. The judge called the doctor and asked why this man had been certified insane. Because he heard a voice, said the doctor. Didn't the Apostle Paul hear a voice, countered the judge, who was a Christian man? This is a disgrace to the American flag, and he told Reuben to prosecute everyone who had anything to do with it. I shall never prosecute one, answered Reuben, but I will do one thing. I will pray for them. 
He crossed the court and offered his hand to his brother, but he turned his back on him. He went to his wife, but she did the same. For what a victory he had in his own soul. And that's a little bit, some of the pressure that these people were facing here. Now, what Reuben faced, what Judah faced, that has not been our lot. But for but for folks who have not had our background, moving to a sold out position for Jesus Christ is similar. They often face many of those similarities. But just uh, reviewing here a little bit, what the writer to the Hebrews points out to them is that they have, they have one greater than the prophets. They have one greater than angels. They have one greater than Moses. They have one greater than Joshua. They have one greater than Aaron. They have one greater than the temple and all the ceremonies. That's what the book of Hebrews goes over and over. One, uh, one book on Hebrews uh, said this, Just as the stars fade from view in the greater glory of the sun, so the types and shadows of Judaism pale into insignificance before the greater glory of the person and work of the Lord Jesus. Yet there was still the problem of persecution. All who professed to be followers of the Lord Jesus faced bitter, fanatical opposition. For true believers, this could lead to the peril of discouragement and despair. They needed endurance in view of the coming reward. Uh, in reading this again, uh, these verses, uh, this uh, it, it, the contrast set out to me again. Um, the uh, I, and I was reading it in the New American Standard, and the first two verses go like this: God, after He had spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and many ways in these last days has spoken to us in his son whom he appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the world and so I notice these contrasts and then so it said God who spoke long ago well I should write all those first long ago to the fathers in the prophets in the prophets, in many portions, in many ways. Okay, that was the way it was. Now, it says in these, in these last days, okay, in the last days, has spoken to us, to us in his son. Anyway, the contrast, it just, it just really stood out to me, the contrast, that the way they was, that first, the first two verses start out. <coughs> So it was long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions, in many ways. But now, in these last days, and we're still in those last days, he's spoken to us. And it's in his son, and that's all comprehensive. That, in the prophets, many portions, many ways, it's all included in the son. So anyway, it, it's just kind of thrilling. Uh, there's one final way. No more prophets act some strands of belief they had their prophets they put their prophets up there on a level with jesus christ 
That's not right. No more prophets. And again, I just, I just say it again, like in the King James, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past to the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken to us. And those three words, God hath spoken, that is so powerful. Uh, God has revealed himself to us. It's revelation. Uh, one, of the, one, one place I was studying, it said, it was talking about this. Revelation, God's disclosure of truth about himself, man, sin, and salvation. Other religions are man's thoughts about God. Christianity is a revealed religion. It is not based on man's thoughts about God, but on God's revelation, God revealing himself to mankind. And I don't know if we can be impressed as well as we should be on the fact that God has revealed himself. He's spoken to us. We can know life is not a guessing game. Uh, one person uh, uh, gave this illustration. Uh, and How many of you have ever been in a cave and the guide turned the lights off? Okay, quite a few of you. They do that. Okay, and it's dark. It's darkness, right? Okay. And then they turn the light back on. And you see all that, you see the beauty, the beauty of the cave. And so uh, this person that was given that illustration said, um, suddenly the lights come back on from darkness to beauty. Life without God is life in the absolute, is like life. Life without God is like life in the absolute darkness of an underground cavern. Life is without meaning apart from God's revelation. Revelation is God turning on the light. Well, as I mentioned here, the um, <coughs> verses 5 through 14, and I suppose we could expound on those, but uh, as I mentioned, basically all I'm saying about those is that that is showing that Christ is superior to the angels. And uh, he quotes seven different passages from the Old Testament. And uh, he shows that Jesus is the son. The angels were servants. The angels are ministering spirits. But Christ is the king. And, and it says the angels worship him. So it's showing that Jesus is superior to the angels. And he has an eternal throne. Uh, the angels are ministering spirits of flame of fire. Jesus' kingdom, it says his scepter is a scepter of righteousness, and we could talk more about that, but uh, the official staff of a ruler, the scepter, and righteousness is the characteristic of his kingdom. Uh, he loved righteousness, he hated iniquity, and it reminds us of the verse uh, in uh, Beatitudes, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. That's the scepter of God's kingdom. I did notice it was very interesting, the, the, the attributes that are pointed out here in verses 10, 11, and 12. It says, Lord in the beginning, thou Lord in the beginning has laid the foundation of the earth. So that's pointing out Christ as creator. And then in uh, verse 11, it says, all these things are going to perish, but he remains. And so that's showing that his eternity, his eternal attributes. And then uh, all those things are going to be folded up as a vester and they'll be changed. But he's the same. 
and his years won't fail. So he's sovereign over all that. He's immutable. So uh, those those uh, bringing out his attributes was was interesting. Now I wanted to look yet at two one to four, and it says um, I'll just read it again. Therefore we ought therefore because of this tremendous revelation we have. We ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, and with divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to his own will. So saying about this tremendous revelation that we have, and it's the warning, it says we ought to give the more earnest heed. And uh, just uh, quickly looking where that word is used, that word ought is used in Luke 2.49. Well, that's, um, that's when Jesus is responding to his parents about uh, them couldn't, they couldn't find him there in the temple. And he said, how is it that ye sought me? Wished ye not that I must be about my father's business? That's Luke 2.49. I must be about my father's business. The same as this word ought here. And also in uh, chapter 9, verse 22, where Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and be slain. Um, let's see. Oh, the Son of Man must suffer many things. That's the one I wanted. That's the same word. I'm just, the power of that word ought is must we must give the more earnest heed and the uh, give the more earnest that word in the greek has the idea of super abundantly or exceedingly and the word heed is pay attention to or apply oneself to and the word slip listen anyway let them slip uh, as the idea of carelessly passing the greek is run out as a leaking vessel and um so are we giving abundant attention to the things we have heard lest they run out of us like a leaking vessel? Well, this word, okay, he, he's contrasting here again the seriousness. I mean, it was serious in the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? He says, if the word spoken by angels, and maybe I will just look at those verses to understand how the Jews looked at it. In Acts 7.53, it says, Who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. And then in Galatians 3.19, don't really have time to expand on this, but Revelation 3.19, it was added because, talking about the law, that it was ordained by angels in the hands of a mediator, and Moses was a mediator, so they saw that the, they... Their impression was that the law was given by angels. Uh, and so he says here, if the law, word spoken by angels was steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, and you can think pretty quick about some of the consequences of not heeding the law in the Old Testament. You think about Achan. Achan, you know, his whole family was stoned. Nadab and Abihu, when they offered a strange fire, it jumped out and burned them. Uh... Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, the earth opened up and swallowed them when they challenged Moses. It's pretty serious. He says if 
if not heeding the law in the Old Testament, received a recompense or reward or justice or punishment, I guess we could say, how much greater will we'll be facing if we don't heed the word that we have. So it's pretty serious. It says, when every transgression and disobedience receives a just recompense, transgression has to do with the idea of stepping across the line. Disobedience is failing to comply with commands. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> How shall we escape if we neglect? If we neglect this great salvation. It was spoken by the Lord, confirmed by those who heard Jesus, the disciples, and it was also confirmed by God in the miracles and um, signs that he, he, he followed. I'll, I want to read here yet what uh, this book, uh, rather New Testament commentary by Harold Martin on Hebrews, what he says about neglect. The word neglect in the Greek means to fail to care for or fail to give proper attention to. It is easy for Christians to neglect this great salvation because it is largely invisible and spiritual. One of the cardinal sins of Christians is to neglect private devotions, taking time daily for prayer and careful reading of the Word of God. From such neglect stem many other sins that bring much dishonor and reproach to the name of Christ. Those who neglect their salvation will soon find that their defenses are lowered. Human beings are capable of doing the very highest acts of kindness in one moment, and the very next moment they can be cruel and unkind. At one moment, humans seem to have a little spark of God, and the next time they seem to be under the influence of the devil himself. This is true for the new believer as well as for the saint of ripe years. There is no sin that any person can be quite sure he will never commit. Neglecting salvation is often the result of giving in to the luring influences of the world around us. The tendency of the carnal mind to focus on this life instead of the life to come and the inclination to ignore the means of grace, including the regular assembly with God's people. Now there are many opportunities to feed on the message of the Bible and in this way grow spiritually. For many, it will not always be so. We are living in a time of grace, but the time may very well come when believers will be scattered and exposed to persecution. Those who are careless now will undoubtedly fail in the time of difficult trial. We must never underestimate the value of salvation. It was attained for us at the price of the suffering and death of Jesus. Our salvation is so great because it was planned by God and offered through the blood atonement of his Son and is available to us on the basis of the undeserved, unmerited, and unearned grace of God. Well, not neglect the things that we've been handed, the things we've been taught, the things that we've heard. Not neglect them. Okay, in closing, what did the Hebrew Christians have? Christ. What do we have? Christ. Is that enough? Or should the question be, is that everything? Oh, yeah, I'll put this book in your mailboxes here sometime. But we would see Jesus. Let that 
Let's let that be our pursuit. Let's kneel for prayer.